Okay, you ready to study the Word? Well, we packed a lot in this service today, hadn't we? It's been good already. We could give an invitation and go home, I think. But we won't. Um, we're going to keep going. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, I'm not in a series right now, uh, but I'm doing some standalone uh, messages on um, really... Uh, that has come out of what the Lord is showing me in my personal time with him. So I don't know, it's just kind of a series. It's like Daniel's personal series. Um, but over the last two weeks, um, I've just been sharing messages from my heart out of the overflow of my heart, and today is one of them as well. Uh, two weeks ago, I shared a message on Sabbath and what the Lord was teaching me about uh, Sabbath. And then last week, we talked about a grand invitation that he was inviting us to uh, for God's blessing, for his supernatural leadership, uh, and to be forgiven and walk in forgiveness and, and know what that's like. Uh, this week, I'm in the book of John, and um, Jesus here, just to give you a little context, Jesus is at the end of his ministry. Um, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's made his way back to Jerusalem. He's ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey or the colt that we know. So we're, we're, we're getting there toward the end of his ministry. Uh, and it, by the way, he fulfilled a prophecy by riding in to the city on the colt. And we call that the triumphant entry. And we typically celebrate that uh, right before Easter. Um, he, then when he went into, he cleared the money changers that were in the outer courts of the temple. And they were selling sacrifices for and to buy, so it just kind of cheapened the experience there. So he, he cleaned that, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that's kind of where we are in Jesus' life. We're toward the end. Here's what's happened. Some Greeks have come, some Greek Gentiles have come into Jerusalem. Most likely they came in for the Passover uh, uh, there. Uh, and they wanted to see Jesus, and I'll tell you, I'll explain a little bit more about um, what they were what they were asking to see Jesus. But their visit triggered something. See, that's what's interesting. Their visit triggered something, and within the next few verses, which we'll read here, Jesus talks about his death in an illustration, but he does more than that. Uh, and I love when, when he just kind of crams a whole lot in a little bit. Uh, and he, he actually lays out and identifies what is required for people who follow him. That's what he does. Uh, and what struck with me is this. Here's what the Lord began to just be kind of to reveal uh, to me as I was reading through and studying this passage. It's that we can get so easily confused about what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. We can get confused. Often, we've substituted, now I want you to follow me for just a minute, follow my thinking. Often, we've substituted a creedal belief or a belief in certain religious practices for a personal belief. So here's the result of that. When believers hold a creedal belief, we will be devoted to the cause, perhaps, but maybe not to the person of Christ. The object of our affection shifts from the person to what the person does, or to what that person, or to what we do for that person. 
You follow me? And you've heard me say it before. We, when we seek the Lord, seek his face, not his hands. You follow me now? Jesus came with one purpose in mind. He came with one purpose. His purpose was to do the will of the Father. Uh, I know that because John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me. Then he says, not to do my own will. See, Jesus' mission was not focused on saving and serving and preaching and teaching and healing. Jesus' mission was to keep his eyes focused on the Father and to be obedient and attentive to the will of God, not to the needs of man. The natural outflow of that was he was indeed saving and serving and preaching and teaching and healing. See, if we're devoted to the needs of men in a creedal belief, if we're devoted there in the name of Jesus, see, then what happens is we'll wear ourselves out being disciples of his cause, and our love and service will eventually falter. And then we'll get hurt, and then we'll have unmet expectations, and then disillusionment. There's something wrong with the church, we'll say. But if I'm devoted to and a disciple of Jesus Christ himself and love him passionately, my Christian duty to serve coming out as an overflow will be strong, effective, unwavering for the cause of Christ. You following me? Do you remember Jesus' conversation with Peter that he had on the shore after he was raised from the dead in John chapter 21? You remember that interchange? We talk about it often. John 21, 16, when he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. See, Jesus didn't say in that, inter in that interchange with Peter, he did not say, go and win people over to me and attract people to me any way that you can. Use your best critical thinking skills to operate a church, Peter, and do anything you have to do to attract people to me and, and what I will do for them. That's not what Jesus said to him. Instead, he said, look after my sheep and see that they are fed the truth about me. Make sure that you're feeding them me. See, we cannot define being a believer and a disciple of Jesus with what we do for him. See, we're defined as a believer by our response to what he did for us and who we are to him. See, we are his sheep and he is our shepherd. So what's our proper response? To be a follower of Jesus, we must follow Jesus into death. Matthew 16, 24 says this. And Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and say it with me, and follow me. See, Paul says it this way in Galatians 2, 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what does that look like? What does that even look like? What did Jesus say that is required of his death that is also required of us if we're to follow him? Now, the title of this message today is the priorities of a disciple. 
And I want to show you three priorities of a disciple that we can pick up from these passages. First thing we're going to do is we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you if you stand in the reading of God's word. We're in John chapter 12. But we're going to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to guide us through this and his presence to be with us. Let's do that. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you set, would you set this up? Or would you do what I cannot do? And I sense your presence so strong here, Lord. And so I doubt in myself because I don't want to get in your way. So take my life, use it as a vessel. And Holy Spirit, would you walk in and around this room? Would you whisper to us, Lord, as we study your word? Put us on the edge of our spiritual seats. To hear what you have to say to us. We'll respond in obedience to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain standing. Here we go. Now, I think your passage starts at 23. I'm going to read you a little bit before, so you're just going to have to pay attention for me, and then you're going to catch on to 23. Got it? In verse 20, it says, Some Greeks had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. We want to see Jesus, some translations say. And Philip told Andrew about it. He's like, we got some Greeks wanting to see him. And they went together to ask Jesus. Now, here's what Jesus says, and we pick up in verse 23. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now he's talking about himself and us. Look at what he says here. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, look back at verse 23. He says, now's the time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. And some translations said that he should be glorified. These Greeks come to talk to Andrew and Philip, and they ask if they can see Jesus. And Andrew and Philip go to Jesus and say, these Greeks want to see you. And this was Jesus' odd reply. And I, I raised the question, why then did he reply like this? Now, you know me, I'm going to do a little digging. And so when it says they wanted to see Jesus, if your translation says they wanted to see Jesus. Now, the Greek uses a very specific word for this word. Uh, There's another word for see that we see, and it's uh, the word where we get our word optometry or ophthalmologist, but it's, and I can't pronounce it, but (laughs) optonomonomy. Optonomonomy. And that means to see with the physical eye. All right, uh, and, and so uh, it's, I've come to lay eyes on you. Um, we'll say that when we go, I need to go see a doctor. 
Okay, I want to. I need. I need to see. I need. I need to see a doctor. Uh, but that's not the word they use here. They use the word horaro. I didn't pronounce that right. I just put a little fancy spin on it, which means, here's what it means: to see with the mind, to spiritually perceive with inward spiritual perception. Now that shades that passage. It turns it a different corner. They came wanting to see and understand spiritually about what they had seen physically already. They were drawn in and they wanted to know more about what they had been seeing with their physical eyes. They wanted an experiential knowledge of what they were looking at. Now these Jews, the Jews though, were persistently blindly rejecting Jesus. So here come the Gentiles, they want to see. The Jews were blindly rejecting Jesus. And I say blindly because Jesus was continually doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He raised Lazarus from the dead. They had a front row seat to everything that Jesus was and what he came to do. But they continued to reject him. So there was what we would call a spiritual blindness there. The Jews were spiritually blind. Now, these Gentiles who were not on the inside, they did not have the inside track like the Jews did. They were coming and they wanted to see spiritually Jesus by their desire to be with him and talk with him. Now, Jesus saw that and he saw that the time has now come where his work is ready to spread. But in order for his work to spread and accomplish the will of God across the world, he recognized, now's the time I have to die. Now, it's not recorded at all, and we don't pick up, and most uh, theologians do not believe that Jesus ever spoke to the Gentiles. His response was to the disciples. Because the time had not yet come for Jesus to be glorified. It had not come yet. He had not yet made a way for the Gentiles to believe. He would have to die on the cross for that. But this seemingly insignificant interchange actually ushered in a climax of evidence that signals to Jesus that his mission is at the end and it's time for him to be glorified on the cross so that everyone can know him. See, up until that time, Jesus had said, even in his ministry, he would say, and you know this, he would say, now's not the time. The time has not come yet. The time has not come yet. The time has not come yet. And now he says, the time has come. Now, why am I telling you this? Jesus had to, had to lay down his life so that God the Father could glorify him through his death on the cross. Little side note, not that he would be glorified by men, but he would be glorified by the Father. What an odd way to glorify the Son of God, but for him to be glorified on the cross. Now, unless you're a, of the Jewish nation and heritage, all of us in this room are what would be considered Gentile believers. We would identify there as Gentile believers. We were all once like these Gentiles, Gentile seekers. And it's because of his glorification on the cross that we could meet him and know him. 
Here's the truth, and I'm going to make it plain. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, the same is required for us as for Jesus. Our agenda must be the same as the, one, the man we follow. See, our agendas, our ministries, our church, our families, our security, our reputations, our lives must be nailed to the cross so that Christ can be glorified in our lives. Do you know how I know that? Because when Jesus said the hour has come, when he says that in scripture, the verb has come, also is come in some translations, it's in the perfect tense. You know what that means? It means that the hour has come and it stays with us. There's no going back on the hour has come. So we're in the hour of salvation right now. We're in the hour where the son of God must be glorified. We're living in that moment. When we glorify Christ with our lives, seekers are not drawn to us then. They will have no interest in us at that moment, but they will be drawn to the Jesus being glorified through us. Galatians 6.14 says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You could sum all of that up in this way. A life of integrity will glorify God. Now, in the decisions you make for yourself, seek God's will. In the decisions of your body, your health, your way that you present and carry yourself, would God be honored by the way that you are represented in how you relate and treat others and how you speak to them? Would Christ be honored and glorified? In your evaluation of your life, is Christ being glorified in all of these areas, when people say, when people see the way you live and hear the way you talk and see the way that you present yourself, do they see something different? Do they see something different with their eyes? Something that would make them be like the Gentiles wanting to see something more about the Jesus that's in you. So the first priority of a disciple was to see the Lord glorified. Here's the second one, to see the Lord crucified. To see the Lord crucified. John 12, 24, he says, I tell you the truth. And then he uses this illustration. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. Now, scientifically, we know the principles of farming and gardening state that a seed has to be sown into the ground. And that's planted. We have to plant the seed. And it can only germinate or reproduce and grow when the seed dies in the soil. Okay? A kernel of wheat, think about what it does. A kernel of wheat will never fulfill its purpose without the kernel's death, the planting, reproducing, and sprouting. I want you to think about that. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Before there can be resurrection power, and fruitfulness, there must be death. He wants you and I to see that his crucifixion is the only way that there can ever be life. 
And if it's true for Jesus, who else is it true for? All of us. If you want to see resurrection power in your life, if you want to see the life of Christ manifest in your life, then you must see the Lord crucified and be crucified with him. See, with that crucifixion, there is resurrection life. There is purpose and service. See, here's what happens. You'll be sharing. You'll be loving. You'll be serving, developing gifts. There will be reproduction. Look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 25. He says, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. The calling here, church, is to hate our lives. Now, we've talked about this before, that word hate. We don't use that word hate. We use it differently in our context than what Scripture uses it here. Hate in this context is not talking about a disregard. It's not talking about a throwing away. I hate that. I hate that. That's, not how, that's how we use it. That's not how Scripture uses it. It's talking about a deprioritizing. It's, that's what it's talking about, talking about a deprioritizing. It means that we place Christ and his plans and his will above our pleasures, our plans, and our wills. That's what it means. See, our lives are precious to us. And our lives are the only things that we can give to God. It's the only thing that we can give. So when we hold on to our lives, when we are the owners, when we think we're the owners, then everything in the world matters. See, when our lives, our agendas, our wills are top priority, then everything in the world tends to matter. Have you ever noticed that? Where you eat, your house, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the balance in your bank account, the retirement account, your investments, the way people perceive you, your reputation, what people think about you, what someone else is doing. See, all of it matters, see? All, when all, and when all of it matters, when something does not go according to your plan, when you're the owner of your life and something does not go according to your plan, then we'll get real worried or discouraged or anxious or depressed or angry or jealous or fearful really quickly. See, when your world is your world, when your physical world is your world and you're in charge of it, see, you bear the weight of it, you think, and the weight of it will crush you, and guess what? Sooner or later, you will lose it all because we were not created to bear the weight of our lives. See, when we see Christ crucified and we are crucified with Christ, see, what happens then is we become stewards. It's his life that we care about, and then we steward this life. But our cares for the things of this world, the matters of the world, strangely, strangely dim and lose their weight. See, our grip loosens. It begins to loosen on them. Our attitudes change before them, towards them. And instead of fighting and clawing for everything we have because we think that everything that we have in this world matters, we start to see ourselves in light of eternity. This world and all that we have then seems distant. It feels, it feels weird. It feels less like home. And more like we're just people passing through. Like we're sojourners. And there's this holy unsettlement that happens in the soul. And then Jesus says, verse 26, 
Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? What does that mean? Do I need to quit my job and pray and read my Bible all day and become a missionary or become a pastor? No. That's not what he's saying. But what it does mean is the life of a disciple is a life of sacrifice. It's a crucified life. It's a life where you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot trying to follow Jesus. It's a life where what you do, you're doing for his purposes and not your own. See, it's a driving change. It's an engine change of your life. So what's the result? The result is then you're not living for yourself anymore. And then as we're submitting to the person of Christ, submitting to the Spirit of God, we'll be empowered by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God, and you will live out His purposes for your life. See, when you're in charge, when you're in the driver's seat of your life, you are living for you. Your decisions, the direction of your life, the destination is you. It's you. Now let me say this. A self-seeking life, a self-seeking life, a life lived for yourself, by yourself, is akin with, at some level, a devaluing of someone else. I want you to follow me. When you're living for life for yourself, you're constantly going to be devaluing someone else. The scripture would say we'd have hatred for others. We'd be devaluing them. And again, not that we dis disregard or despise someone. It's making yourself more important. See, okay? However, self-sacrifice is akin with love to others. And love is life. That's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You see that? It's a difference from you driving and you having control of your life and Christ having control of your life. You living for you or you being crucified and living for him. It's an engine change. It's a shift. When we see the Lord crucified, we too will be crucified. A life crucified with Christ will have an outflow of love and service for his sake. It will, it will. Charles Spurgeon said this, all of you who would have Christ as your savior, that you must be willing to serve him. We are not saved by service, but we are saved to service. That'll sum it up. Here's the third priority of a disciple of Jesus to see the Lord multiplied. We're to see the Lord glorified, we're to see him crucified, then we're to see him multiplied. Look at the last part of 24 and I'm done. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now I believe that when these Greeks, when these Greek Gentiles came to see Jesus, Jesus could see the harvest awaiting. I think when he saw it, he could see, okay, we're ready. We're ready. 
Do you know then that the first missionary trip of the early church in Acts was to the Greeks in Antioch? And then this spurred on Paul's missionary journeys where he concentrated his ministry on the Greeks and the Roman Empire? Jesus said, if I die, there will be much fruit, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now, Jesus had to be crucified and glorified, and now he can be multiplied. After Jesus rose from the grave, rose from the dead, he made it a priority to appear to his disciples. He told them this on two occasions. Mark 16, 15 says this, and then he told them, this is the resurrected Jesus, before he ascended, the resurrected Jesus to his disciples, he said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. See, the work had been done. Work had been done. He says, therefore, see, now you can share in my authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, disciples, be sure of this, church. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And now we're here we are. Here we are. You want to know the secret to multiplication? The secret to multiplication is to tell the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection. Preach and teach the truth of the Word of God unapologetically through the power of the Spirit and multiplication God's way will come. I'm stunned by how many churches try to mimic multiplication by other means other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know why? Because they often are devoted to the cause but not devoted to the Savior. Just this week, I was talking to another pastor friend who wanted my opinion of a search committee's pastor profile. Not for me. The brochure, I went and looked, the brochure was very thorough, and it was very well done, actually. A lot of thought had been put into this pastor profile for this church. So what I mean by that is this church got together, they did all their, they're looking for a pastor, and they got together, did a pastor profile brochure, and they've published it, so as they're looking for pastoral candidates, they've got, hey, this is what our church is about. Okay. But as I began to read my heart broke and I could sense the deception over this church. In their brochure, they explained how they had once had a vibrant downtown ministry. God using this congregation to do miraculous things. The attendance was strong, even up into the 13 and 1400s. The unity was strong. They had launched nearly 50 churches in the surrounding areas and within the city. The university president, the city mayor, collegiate athletes, professors, businessmen and women, the city's movers and shakers were in attendance with this church. Widespread and culture-changing endeavors for the cause of Christ were coming for from this church. I mean, they were multiplying. They were moving and shaking. 
on the day that this church dedicated its new auditorium in 1924. The pastor stood and proclaimed this to that congregation. He said this, One must be under the lordship of Christ to have a comprehensive understanding of the church and all the great movements and events of the last 2,000 years. A failure of men to stay under the lordship of Christ will bring chaos in the world, confusion in the church, and disappointment in all of our practical affairs. If the church ever leaves his lordship, be assured that much uneasiness, much confusion, and much disappointment will be the necessary result and can only be traced to our failure to grasp this sublime and fundamental fact. Christ is Lord or he is not Savior. He is Lord or he is imposter. He is Lord of all or he is nothing at all and there is no middle position. If this mystery is not understood, be assured that all the power of Christ all the indwelling of his spirit, all which enables us to bring multitudes into his kingdom, it shall all be lost in this church. That's what he stood to say when they dedicated that building in 1924. And then he said, all hell the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, trait fall. Ruin that one. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Now gather yourself from that faux pas. We'll let it that out. Now fast forward 40 years to today, to this brochure. Now his quote was not in that brochure, by the way. I did some digging. They did not quote that pastor in that brochure. But now I wanna tell you, this almost extinct congregation with less than 150 left in attendance is doing everything it can to attract anyone it can. And I'm going to use some of the language that they use in their brochure. We want to multiply and grow through diversity, through inclusion, through programming, the, our pastor's personality and outreach programs to the community. Their priorities, as stated in their brochure, are fellowship, association within their denomination, their pipe organ, be, and being inclusive and embracing all lifestyles within the leadership of the church. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this congregation that I'm telling you about has lost her priority as a disciple of Christ. It is no longer fulfilling the commandment of God to go and make disciples. And it is no longer multiplying like she once was. Seems to me like that pastor in 1924 was pretty prophetic when he said, if this church ever comes out from the Lordship of Christ, we will be doomed. I am convinced that the right strategy to grow a church God's way is to do what Jesus did. You'll not convince me otherwise. If we glorify God with our lives, if we die to ourselves and follow him, 
if we go and tell as many people as we possibly can about Jesus with the truth of the Word of God, this church will flourish and endure. We will endure. Glorify, crucify, multiply. Those are the priorities of a disciple of Jesus Christ.